If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. With their intricate white designs on delicate coloured jasper ware, Josiah Wedgwood's ceramics are some of the most distinctive and recognisable objects of the 18th century. But as a new book by the historian and director of the V&A Museum, Tristram Hunt, reveals, the designer of these elaborate creations was not only a trend-setting potter, but also a canny business operator and a radical political agitator. I spoke to Tristram to find out more. Can you start us off by introducing us to Josiah Wedgwood and explaining why you call him the radical potter of the title of the book? So Josiah Wedgwood was one of the greatest entrepreneurs, business people, designers, and above all, ceramicists. He's the father of English pottery, who lived 1730 to 1795. He's the man we credit for inventing jasper ware, that amazing blue and white designs, cream ware, which is a type of beautiful earthenware you'll have many dinner services with. But I call him the radical potter because he also had this very, very strong set of radical beliefs that were not only about change in Britain, but change right around the world. So I want to ask you about those radical beliefs later in the interview, but let's just start by talking about him as a ceramicist a little bit. So what set his work apart from everything else that was being made at the time? This is so interesting because he comes from a generation of, of potters. The Wedgwoods had been making pots in North Staffordshire and Stoke-on-Trent for generations. He was one of 12 uh, children. Um, his brother was a potter. His other brother was a potter. But Wedgwood was different. And it was this experimental mindset. It was this determination to challenge, to interrogate, to investigate traditional ways of working. And it begins with different colours and styles. It then moves into the actual body of the ceramics, a different form of material for the making of pottery. And then it's about fashion. He's got this great eye for fashion and capturing consumer demand. And then it's about the making of it. He makes it at a much lower basis. He's able to manufacture it so that it goes right around the world. So you put all that together and you have this phenomenal individual who transforms not only ceramics but also is a key figure in the beginnings of the industrial revolution. 
So you call him um, the Steve Jobs of the 18th century. And from your description there, I, I can see why. So for people who might not know um, Wedgwood's work that well, how would you how would you describe the style? The style initially is what we call Rococo. Um, so lots of really quite crazy greens and yellows, teapots, moulded like cauliflowers, tea caddies like pineapples. So he's he's there in that um, world of quite flamboyant design. But really we know him for his neoclassical designs, a slightly more austere, elegant design. And if you think of his greatest contribution, which is creamware, which is a, a, an earthenware ceramic, which looks a bit like porcelain, that very white, but is much harder, much more durable. And onto it, you can put designs. So whether those are designs of pheasants or ships or country houses or people's faces. Um, and those became the dinner services that in Georgian Britain in the 1700s people would purchase. And we've got these wonderful accounts, for example, of Jane Austen buying her dinner service set. So that's the first thing we know him for. And the second component is Jasper. And Jasper is that really quintessential Wedgwood design. Think of blue and white, think of lilac, think of green, um, and then those neoclassical reliefs of dancing uh, neoclassical uh, figures around a bowl or a teapot. Um, and you'll be able to know that it's a piece of Wedgwood because of that use of Jasper. What kind of people would have a piece of Wedgwood in their home? Was it only for the creme de la creme, the aristocratic elites, or would it be also the middle classes or the, the lower gentry, as it were? Well, this was Wedgwood's brilliance. He, he always began with what he called the legislators of taste. So his creamware was known as queensware because he convinced Queen Charlotte that this was, you know, the, the finest ceramics you could buy, and she buys it. He styles himself potter to her majesty. And what he always liked to do was to get the aristocracy, the royalty, to endorse a product. And then he would roll it out at a much broader market. So it was, after a while, the upper middling sorts who would be having a Wedgwood. And then uh, during the course of the 19th century, mass production, the price falls. But he was always really keen for it to be... Uh, not super exclusive, but a premium product. And what Wedge would never like to do was discount his prices. Because he thought once you started discounting, then, then you were really undermining the value of the product. So he's a very savvy businessman. Was it just in English homes that you'd find this, or was it was there a trade globally? There was a trade globally. One of Wedgwood's great achievements was to assist in the building of the Trent and Mersey Canal, which allowed product from Stoke-on-Trent in North Staffordshire to go up to Liverpool, and from the Liverpool docks, it would go right around the world. So he was a big exporter to continental Europe, to France, to the German principalities, the eastern seaboard of America, they loved Wedgwood. So the Boston, New York, Philadelphia, you see lots of uh, uh, exports there. And then the, and, and then the, the colonies, so the Caribbean, uh, right around uh, to, to South Asia. So it was a global export. What do you see as a secret to his success then? Was it combining this kind of inventive new technology in terms of ceramics with, with these business strategies he had? 
That's exactly right. It's 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 this extraordinary mix, which is why um, we can think of him as the Steve Jobs figure. He connects the design to the technology, to the manufacturing, to the marketing, and he puts all that together so that you have a high end product which is accessible which you yourself want to be identified with. Um, and he always protects the brand. And the brand is really important and significant for him. And it's it's not one piece because lots of you know potters had you know excellent design or excellent manufacturing or excellent technology. He puts it all together um, in a really exciting new way. Let's turn now to his politics. So, how would you characterize his political ideology? So, when we're talking about radicalism in the 18th century, what do we really mean by that? What we mean is a first of all a deep love of country. He was a patriot, um, but he was a radical patriot, and there was this idea that the meaning of England and increasingly Great Britain was to be this beacon of liberty, this beacon uh, of uh, of religious toleration, um, the rule of law, um, and he feared these great attributes were being undermined by corruption and incompetence and uh, and that great word jobbery uh, of kind of jobs for the boys um, at the heart of government, and so. He always had this love of country, which he felt was being betrayed. And his solution to that was radical political reform, which meant, first of all, parliamentary reform. So extending the vote to many more people than it had, annual parliaments so that you could hold government uh, to account, um, and an end to the kind of corruption which he felt was at the heart of parliamentary life. So that was why he supported John Wilkes, who was the great uh, radical campaigner. Um, He supported Major Cartwright in his campaign for the vote. So it was reform at home, but then also he increasingly looked to some of the reform movements, some of the revolutionary movements abroad. Do we have any sense of how his ideology was shaped by his background? I think an important part of Wedgwood's background was his non-conformity, was his background in in the dissenting tradition. Um, He comes from a Unitarian background, one of the most progressive interesting, challenging sects within uh, the the nonconformist, the Protestant nonconformist world. And so he had this great desire to challenge. And so whether he was challenging ways of thinking uh, of working in ceramics, whether he was uh, challenging uh, ways of marketing, but whether he was challenging politics as well. So he was always questioning, always challenging. And then a really important part of his political education is his relationship with his business partner, Thomas Bentley. Um, and it is Bentley who introduces him uh, to the works of James Thompson, who's a who's a great radical poet, but also he reads Thomas Paine, he reads Richard Price. So he, 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 he gains an education um, in radical 18th century thought. And how did this political stance inform his work? Because it was quite explicit in many cases, wasn't it? It was. I mean, th- th- there's some kind of secretive work. So he, he, he designs some, some secret material for the American revolutionaries because he supports the colonists who are fighting against uh, King George III um, and Lord North. He, he creates some interesting um, uh, buttons um, 
marking the French Revolution, the beginnings of the storming of the Bastille in 1789. But his greatest contribution um, is known as the Emancipation Badge because he was an abolitionist. He believed in the need to abolish the trade in enslaved Africans. And he contributed to that campaign in the way he knew how, which was through design. And he creates this celebrated uh, uh, design, uh, him and William Hackwood, um, of the enslaved African um, on bended knee saying, am I not a man and a brother, which becomes the great symbol, which becomes the great uh, icon of anti-slavery activism in the 1780s and 1790s. So the Emancipation Badge, what role did that play in the abolition movement? Was it a bit like wearing a a T-shirt with a slogan, for example? Who would be wearing it? Absolutely. It was like, you know, in the old days, wearing a CND badge or an Extinction Rebellion sticker uh, today. You were, in a, in, in a very noble sense, virtue signalling. You were signalling your virtue. You were, you, you were saying that you are unhappy with the status quo and want political change. And it was part of a civil society movement which fed into the campaign which led to abolition in 1807. And it was crucially amongst, you know, what we would call the chattering classes or the fashionable classes um, who in those ages shaped public opinion and shaped political decision making. And so it was a really important contribution to that groundswell uh, which led to abolition. Was Wedgwood involved in the abolition movement in any other ways or did he basically see the area that he could contribute best in and channeled his energies into that being designed? That was his major contribution but he I mean he also wrote a series of letters to correspondents setting out his belief in the need for abolition, um, trying to convince them of the rightness of the cause. He hosted William Wilberforce on one of his his tours who came to Etruria Hall, uh, his home um, in North Staffordshire. But it was through that it was through the design, but also then the manufacture and distribution of it at his own expense. And I suppose his final really important contribution was also to support Equiano, who was the great um, freed slave um, who, who was campaigning for abolition. And Wedgwood actually is, is his kind of surety at, that he vouches for him as Equiano uh, travels to you know, dangerous parts of the UK at that time, you know, Bristol slaving areas. Um, And when Equiano needs political support and actually support for his personal safety, Wedgwood supports that. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. But actually my favourite is some of his early stuff. I love, I absolutely adore the kind of Rococo green and white cauliflower teapots. There, there's, there's, there's a kind of, there's a joyfulness and an energy uh, and, an, uh, and a kind of robustness to them, uh, which I really like. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Time flies. We blinked and 2024 is halfway over. 
What's something you've accomplished this year that you're proud of? Maybe you made it out of bed and to work every day. Or maybe you started shedding some old habits that were weighing you down. But even when you're making progress, life can feel like it's moving too fast. We can't slow time down, but we can give you a moment every week to hit pause, set intentions and reset. Therapy is a guaranteed time to check in on how you're feeling, what you want to do more of and what you want to change. Otherwise, it's easy to keep going through the motions without getting what you want out of life. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. You can start the sign-up process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Take a moment with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash historyextra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash historyextra. Do we have any sense of what Wedgwood was like as a man, what what he was like as a character, his personality. We do, because we've got all these wonderful letters. Um, so not least to his business partner, Bentley. I mean, sadly, we don't have Bentley's uh, replies half the, I mean, for the vast majority um, of the time. And he's a very driven individual, Wedgwood, but he likes to gossip. Um, he, he enjoys a joke. Um, he's quite gregarious. Um, he's intellectual. I mean, he likes exploring ideas and, and, and testing uh, ideas. He's practical. Um, he's got a good head for business and, you know, talks about money and, 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 and how to manage that. And deeply uxorious, loves his wife, loves his children. These beautiful accounts of, you know, going riding with his daughter, Suki. Um, and actually he does, he has this feel for the land. He's got this 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 great almost pastoral account of the, the beauty uh, of England. He does this trip from Staffordshire to Cornwall to look at the uh, the clay and the and the and, and the um the materials in Cornwall, um, and um, he, he describes um, the, the countryside he goes through in really loving, beautiful ways. So he's a, he's a, I think he's a, he's, he's a really interesting character. Yeah, clearly a lot going on um, with him. He was also a member of the Lunar Society of Birmingham, which has a very intriguing name. Who were they and, and what did they stand for? What did they get up to? So the Lunar Society, who used to meet by the full moon because they would they would gather uh, and then ride back from uh, Soho House, which was where they met, which was uh, Matthew Bolton, the Birmingham manufacturer's uh, house um, and, and factory um, in, um, in Birmingham. So there you brought together, you know, the incredible minds uh, of the period. So whether it's Wedgwood uh, or Erasmus Darwin uh, or Bolton, um, who would discuss new discoveries, uh, new ideas, uh, new experiments. It was a kind of debating club come seminar come sort of, you know, gentlemen's, you know, private dining club, but with the greatest minds you could possibly bring together. And it was part of what what, what we now rightly think of as the English Enlightenment, that this, this moment uh, when the discovery of the natural world and the beginnings of industrialization are explored and debated amongst like-minded people. Um, 
what are called natural philosophers. And for Wedgwood, part of this was about the revelation of God's mystery through the discovery of natural phenomena. And so many of them, again, from this non-conformist background, who saw the wonder of God through natural revelation. Um, and it was also clearly a lot of fun as well. Um, and, and Wedgwood was part of this circle. Yeah. So all these high-minded ideals, you know, the radicalism, the reformist um, element, do we have any sense of how they impacted um, Wedgwood's business affairs in terms of the way that he ran his his factories, for instance, or the way that he treated his workers? Did he apply them to that field as well? There it gets more complicated. Um, I mean, on the one hand, Wedgwood is a good employer in that he takes health and safety very seriously. He takes the threat of lead poisoning very seriously. He builds new accommodation for his workers. He seeks to create a, a rational, practical world where people can you know, live a good life. On the other hand, he's pretty brutal when it comes to the management of his factory at Etruria. And really, he begins this process of the, the production line, of the conveyor belt. And there, there, there is an attempt at the standardization of production. He, he famously says he wants to make machines of men as cannot err, because he's had enough of wasted production um, in, in the system. And so you do get a sense that some of the the individual expression, the craftsmanship of pottery is systematically uh, stripped out by Wedgwood as he seeks to create this, this production system. And also, you know, when they ask for more wages, he threatens to sack them all. And when they, <laughs> they try and sort of unionize, he threatens to break that. So he's pretty tough with his workers at the same time uh, as you know, understanding their needs in terms of, you know, housing and health and safety and accommodation. So it, it, it's a mixed picture. You mentioned revolution. And I wanted to ask you a bit more about the revolutionary symbols that were hidden in, in some of Wedgwood's work. Um, can you describe some of them and tell us how those messages would have been received in Britain? So... Wedgwood designed secretly for, for the American market of a, a coiled rattlesnake with the phrase, do not tread on me, which became the symbol of the Continental Army uh, in the United States. Um, and so there he was consciously, if secretly, putting himself on the side of the revolutionaries who were fighting against uh, the government uh, of Lord North uh, and King George III. It was a pretty radical um, um, step to make. But you have to understand, in a sense, that during that period, it was the, the American Revolution was almost a civil war with parties on both sides, on both sides of the Atlantic, taking different sides of, of the dispute. He also then produced uh, this beautiful jasperware um, medallion of the storming of the Bastille um, in, you know, following July 1789. And again, that was a moment when the reception of the French Revolution hadn't yet become um, so, in a sense, dark. There wasn't such hostility towards it uh, as there would be in, um, in ensuing years. But again, you know, the storming of the Bastille and uh, the beginning of the collapse of the monarchy, to put yourself on that side of the argument was quite a, uh, qu quite a powerful political step. So he was not afraid in many instances to use his ceramics to explore political ideas. Mm. It seems quite 
a bold move, doesn't it? Especially considering the fact that he had a royal patron. So, for example, the the American example, if that had been public knowledge back in Britain, might that have got him in some hot water? I think I think it would have, but it's also a kind of exciting sense of the fluidity of some of the politics um, of that period. I mean, he's he's also putting on to teapots, which he's sending over to America, images um, of the Earl of Chatham, who was the great supporter of the colonists in the in the early years. So, so and. In a sense, there was almost a freedom there that that you could have this political debate, even at, at the same time as you were, uh, as as you rightly say, Potter to Her Majesty. But it also might point out that uh, the kind of distinctiveness between some of that that consumer identity and and then the political identity. It's a it's a really fascinating and and, and fluid space, I think. Yeah, it's a lot of complexity in all of this. Um, another another thing that um, some of Wedgwood's pieces celebrated was free trade. So do you think that he backed free trade because, you know, it was a canny business move or was it more of an ideological stance? Well, again, I mean, Wedgwood <laughs> only backed free trade when it was in his interest. So he mm. didn't back free trade when it came to Ireland because he thought that low labour costs in Ireland would undermine the pottery industry in Britain. But he did back free trade when it came to France because he knew there was strong demand in France for um, his, his earthenware products. You know, Wedgwood was a canny businessman who would make the case for political decisions when they would also support his his business. I think if one's more charitable, there was also this this, this bigger sense that over time, free trade um, and the opening up of, of markets would, would lift all boats, that everyone would gain wealth. But again, also, you know, he didn't think that should apply to China yet either because he... <laughs> And that's a long-running issue in, in North Staffordshire that actually, you know, East Asia, again, would un- would undermine competitiveness. You mentioned earlier John Wilkes, and that was another of Wedgwood's radical causes, was a dedication to um, Wilkes. What can you tell us about what Wilkes stood for and, and also how Wedgwood showed his ab- admiration for him? So John Wilkes was the, the popular campaigner for parliamentary reform, for the extension um, of the vote, for the freedom of parliament uh, against um, corruption and interference from the executive, from the government, and particularly from the court. Um, And he had um, this this long-running battle about whether he could take up his parliamentary seat uh, because of allegations surrounding bankruptcy and, and other misdemeanors. And in a sense, what's important is that he becomes a popular radical hero, that he is uh, a figure who is seen to be on the side of the people against the court. And the great cry is Wilkes and Liberty, uh, that he is on the side of freedom. And with that, um, the kind of radical patriot idea of what Great Britain should be uh, for. And Wedgwood is a strong supporter of his, um, and he 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 does a teapot, a beautiful teapot. We have one at the V&A um, with Wilkes with a with a quill in hand, with sort of echoes of Magna Carta and Liberty all around him, uh, and Wilkes and Liberty emblazoned um, on the side.
side of it. And this would be sold and people would have this in their homes uh, as an identifier, as you'd have a, you know, Labour Party mug now or a Liberal mug or a Green mug um, as, as a symbol of their political identification. And Wedgwood clearly identified with that radical criticism of court corruption. So did did Wedgwood make a great fortune off his business? And what did he do with it? Did he keep on working till the end or did he retire in luxury? He did make a great fortune. I mean, he was very, very rich by the time um, he died in the 1790s. Um, and he had this huge house with lots of servants. It was it was run, uh, as one of his early biographies put it, like a, like a London hotel. Um, he created these wonderful gardens. Um... But the, the pottery industry is a really fickle industry. You know, it is, it is you know, boom to bust. Um, and his children never had the same energy as him in taking on the business. You know, they were more interested in becoming, you know, academics and landowners. And, you know, they, they, they lacked that urge. And so really the, the, the history of the Wedgwood business um, for about a century or so after his death is one of slightly steady decline. And then it comes back alive again um, in the interwar years in the, in, um, in the 20th century. So he, he, he worked to the end, but he was supporting also his sons. There are these lovely letters, you know, encouraging their design, getting them to think about business. And he, he did want, I think, a legacy. He did want the, the business to continue. But um, it, it was, you know, children are so difficult, aren't they? They never do what they're told. So it was, um, it, it, I, I think, he, he, he never got to see the frustration um, of that. Um, but but it, it, the business did not prosper with his immediate sons. So after Wedgwood died, what do you think that his legacy was? What was his impact on British culture and British industry? His legacy was this, this incredible transformation in the production of ceramics in the UK. His legacy was the ability to take on China at China, in a sense, that he was the man who turned the tide on porcelain being the kind of go-to ceramics for the middling sorts across Britain, Europe and North America, because his earthenware, his creamware, uh, was more affordable, more durable, was more amenable to fashion. And so Wedgwood becomes the, the synonym for tableware, that, you know, your set of Wedgwood. Um, and that happens within, you know, 30 years and it's an incredible transformation with that i think we can also point to his role in the beginnings of the industrial revolution and the beginnings uh, of that transformation in british wealth and power and global leadership and he stands at that moment when britain really enters onto the world stage and he explores all of that through ceramic design so i think he's a, a an extraordinary powerful and interesting person particularly for for britain today as we think about our place in the world and uh, the importance of design and manufacturing and wealth creation, he's, he's someone we can really connect with, I think. And so finally, you're talking to me uh, from the V&A um, and there you have a, a world-renowned collection of Wedgwood creations. So what are some of your own personal favourites? Well, I do love the. I do absolutely adore the the, the Wilkes um, teapot um, because it's it's so delicate and embedded within it is so much political 
importance uh, and significance. But we also have a copy of his Portland Vase, and his Portland Vase was this phenomenal uh, jasperware um, imitation of a glass um, vase which was in the British Museum. And it's a technical triumph. It's this quite squat black and white jasper um, vase and it's an imitation of an ancient vase. Is it's an that imitation, yeah. exactly. It's an imitation of an ancient vase, and it's a it's a it's a mark really of his his technical proficiency. It's a mark of uh, of his brilliance um, as a uh, as a ceramicist. But actually, my favourite is some of his early stuff. I love. I absolutely adore the kind of rococo green and white cauliflower teapots. There, there's, there's, there's a kind of, there's a joyfulness and an energy uh, and, an, uh, and a kind of robustiousness to them, uh, which I really like. That was Tristram Hunt. His book, The Radical Potter, Josiah Wedgwood and the Transformation of Britain, is on sale now, published by Alan Lane. You can find a link in the show notes. Tristram also wrote a feature on Wedgwood, And you can find that in the October issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Tune in tomorrow for an episode on Tudors in Love. (laughs) 